You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Reuven Lerner, a professional teacher in Israel who helps companies train their workforces in Python, Git, and other programming technologies. We get into some surprising misconceptions people have about object orientation in Python, as well as some of the history of the language and how it became so popular. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com slash jobs. And now, Python and OO. All right, Ruben, thanks so much for joining me. I am delighted to be here, Richard. Great to talk to you. Okay, so you now have a career as someone who trains people in Python. How did you get into that? So we've got an hour. I'll try to compress the story. So basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's like all these different strands that kind of came together. So when I was a student at MIT, I interned at HP over the summers. And then I turned to a full-time job there. And one time, everyone went off to a meeting, except for two of us. And I turned to the other guy and said, I'm a student. I'm not going to the meeting. Why are you not going to the meeting? He said, oh, I'm a consultant. I'm a contractor. I said, what's a contractor? He said, oh, it's the best. And that's basically, while they were all at their meeting thinking we were working, he explained to me how the contracting world works. Fast forward a few years to just before I was going to move to Israel. I was working in New York. And I decided that when I arrived in Israel, I was going to start a consulting company. And my employers in New York at the time said, great, we'll be your first clients. So I sort of arrived in Israel having web development work, having an inkling sort of kind of what it meant to do contracting, but not much more than that. And pretty soon I found myself doing some web development, some system administration, and my clients started asking me also to do some training. I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And as time went on, it was always a mix of different things. And then I started grad school. I started a PhD program. And while I was still working on my dissertation, which was, by the way, a very long period of time, I took 11 years to do the PhD. Wow. While I was working on the dissertation, someone said to me, hey, I know you like to do training. Why don't you come work for this training company? I spoke to the training company. They said, what do you teach? I said, I teach Ruby. At that point, I was doing a lot of Ruby stuff. And they said, oh, there's really no interest in Ruby. Send us your CV anyway. Send us your resume anyway. We'll take a look. And they call me back and they say, oh, my God, you know Python also. There's huge demand for teaching Python. So I said, sure, <laughs> sign me up. And basically, from that point on, I started doing Python training. And when I finished my PhD a few years later, I called the training company and said, thanks very much. I'm going back to doing this on my own. And I realized I could no longer keep up with training in all the different things I wanted to, Python and Ruby and PostgreSQL and web stuff. So I said, I'm just going to focus on Python stuff. And boy, what a smart choice that was in retrospect. I never imagined how exploding the Python world was. And so I've got a great deal because right now my calendar is full, more or less six months in advance. Tons of people want Python training, and I'm having a blast. Wow. Okay, so this is really interesting to me. So first of all, I think that's interesting to me is that the response that you got was, oh, you know, you know Ruby and like, okay, whatever. But, but like Python, we're really into that. So Python is an unusual language for me because I know, I don't know, somewhere in the range of like 16 to 20 different programming languages and maybe half of those I've used professionally. I've never actually done barely anything with Python. In fact, the most experience I have with Python is helping other people with their Python homework <laughs> who are like new to programming. It's similar enough to other languages, especially Ruby, 
that like I'm just able to look at the code and figure out even like syntax errors. Oftentimes I'm like, you know, oh, you're missing a paren here or something like that because, you know, it's pretty similar to a lot of other languages. So and I get that from a training perspective, obviously, you know, the details matter a lot. It's not like you can just walk into a training, you know, and train teach people Python from scratch just because, you know, Ruby. It is interesting to hear that, like, there is such a massive gap between the two languages that, you know, at surface level have a lot of similarities in the grand scheme of programming languages. Well, look, I, th- I think the big reason why there was no market for Ruby and there was a market for Python, at least at the time in Israel, is just the sort of relative sizes of the communities. That Python is massive and lots of corporations are using it. And the number of places using Ruby is, call it 10% of the size, 5% of that. Okay. And so why is that? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious what your hypotheses are. I have some guesses, but I'm curious what yours are. I think there are two basic reasons. Number one is that Ruby basically assumes that you know and love objects and like eat them for breakfast and it is just like the best thing ever. And so if you don't know anything about object-oriented programming, you are completely lost in Ruby. Whereas in Python, you can get away without knowing it. You know, treating it as just like sort of like a glorified bash, which many people do, believe it or not. The other thing is that much of the growth in Python over the last few years has been, of course, the world of data science. The thanks to NumPy and Pandas, you now have this huge influx of people. Actually, I'll say there are three reasons. So the second reason is like data science, that you have this huge influx of people who don't have a programming background, have been told you will now do Python. And they're like, hey, this is not so hard. And then they get addicted and into and everything and their companies do it. And the third reason is when I was at MIT, as an undergrad, the language we learned was Scheme, like a dialect of Lisp. And that had huge influence on the rest of universities around the world. They all taught Scheme for something like 20 years then. About, call it 10 years ago, MIT said, you know, we're not going to do Scheme anymore. We're going to do Python. And I must admit, I was one of the people who said, really? I don't know. I mean, I don't use Lisp every day, but I was brainwashed to believe it's the best language because it's the best (laughs) language. And basically, I thought using Python was going to be a mistake. A, I was wrong. B, that same influence now has manifested itself in universities. And you now have this huge number of students graduating around the world who are like, oh, Python's language I know. Wait, this academic language I learned is also going to give me a job? Holy cow, that's amazing. So all of that together has made it now this crazy, crazy popular language. And by the way, the popularity, I think, is set to grow even more. You might be familiar with PyScript, which was announced a few months ago, which is Python that compiles into WASM in your browser. And basically within, I'm guessing, two years, you'll be able to do front-end development in Python as well, which is going to be like a huge boost to the Python ecosystem as well. That'll be interesting to see. I've heard that same prediction made for a number of other languages, and so far it hasn't really played out that way. Maybe Python will be different because Python is a lot bigger than those other languages. But uh, we'll we'll see. It'll be interesting. uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to find out something I'll, I'm also curious about. Okay. So let's say in a hypothetical world, like you mentioned, Ruby is way more object oriented than Python, which makes sense. Cause like when Matt's created Ruby, that was one of the things he said is he like Python predates Ruby by like five years. And he was like, I looked around, I wanted a truly object oriented scripting language and Perl wasn't it. And Python wasn't it. They're not object oriented enough. Like he was like Alan K object oriented. Like I love small talk, right. you know, that type of stuff. And he's like, I want to make a truly object-oriented scripting language. And I guess he succeeded, if that's your experience with like, <laughs> what are the big differences between the two languages. But I'm curious about, okay, so you mentioned two big factors, and this is going to be my guess as well, is that Python's gotten really big in like data science and, and like machine learning, and also Python's being taught as a first language in a lot of curricula, like universities. 
So I wonder, in an alternate world where Ruby is taught in universities, and let's say that Sussman and them at MIT decided to choose Ruby instead of Python, and let's also decide, let's say hypothetically, that instead of like NumPy and Pandas being libraries that were written in Python, they were Ruby gems. Do you think in that alternate world, if you just swap those two quote-unquote small things, make those two subtle adjustments to reality and history, is it instead the case that you're getting 90% demand for Ruby and 10% for Python instead of the other way around? Great question. I'm guessing not. And I'm guessing not because... Okay. So to me, objects... And I always talk to people about this or talk about it like this, that I see object-oriented programming is a great thing, but it's basically like a packaging tool, a managerial tool, like a a mindset of how you're putting things together. And it allows you maybe to think at a higher level, but at the end of the day, I don't think of it as like, you know, such a big deal. But I see, like, so so I have my mailing list and I always ask people who join my mailing list to tell me like what frustrates you about Python. And a shocking, at least to me, shockingly large number of people say, oh my God, these objects, I just don't get it. And I've started saying this in my classes, like in my intro classes, I'll say like, you know, some people find objects really frustrating because of the different terminology and the way things like the syntax seems turn around. I see a lot of people nod their heads. And so for a lot of people, the mere fact that we're using objects closes it off to them. So in the sort of hypothetical world that you're describing, I think Ruby would be more popular and Python would be less popular than they are now. But I don't think Ruby would have had that breakthrough moment because objects are just really hard for like non-programmers to grasp as a first thing. Okay, so the idea then, if I just want to restate it to make sure I'm understanding it right, is that the fact that Python has any support for objects is like kind of a downside of Python. And in fact, if Python didn't have any kind of object system, and solve those problems in different ways, let's say, then it would be easier to learn and even more popular. Am I saying that right? I don't think so. I don't think so because I think okay, the okay. fact that it has objects, the fact that you don't need to know objects to start with Python is the plus. The fact that then you can sort of move up, like graduate as it were, to actually design your own classes and so forth and organize it better makes it then not just a fun toy language, but a serious one as well. The old statement in the logo world was low floors and high ceilings that's easy to get in on, and there's no limit to what you can do. And I don't think that was true for Logo, but I think it's definitely true for Python. Because you see, you see like multi-billion dollar companies using Python for their stuff, and yet elementary and middle school kids are using it to learn programming, and you've got everything in the middle as well. So I have a a bit of a different conclusion uh, around objects in general. So I look at what do object-oriented languages, and I'm going to use object-oriented in like the modern understanding, not in the Alan Kay understanding, because his definition is pretty much different than like what everybody else ended up on. Whether or not that's fair is a separate question, but that's, <laughs> that's the world we live in. So in a world where object-oriented refers to like Java, C++, Ruby, etc., I see the benefits of object orientation as being things that you can break down at a lower level of granularity. Like, for example, you can say, well, modularity is a benefit, the ability to like hide implementation details. That's a benefit. It means that you can like write software that can be changed over time without breaking everything, without having everything, you know, implicitly depend on everything else. It's a way of being more explicit and clear about your dependencies, like which parts of your system depend on which other parts. You can talk about like, well, there's inheritance is like arguably a benefit or not. That's about code reuse. There's other ways to do code reuse. So like there's other ways to do modularity. There's other ways to do code reuse. Object orientation for the languages that are object oriented, that's like generally the way that you do those, or or at least like that's a popular way of, of doing those things. The thing is though, 
when I break it down to that lower level of granularity and say like, okay, what's more specifically the benefit here? Like I don't say objects are a benefit. I say, okay, what are the benefits that objects bring? Mm -hmm. What I find is that other languages that aren't object oriented do it better. Those benefits of like modularity, I think can be better offered by like a, like a module system. And in fact, object oriented languages all seem to end up with module systems on top of encapsulation, which is like the original way to do modularity. And then you look at like inheritance and like the recommendation is like, well, actually you should prefer composition over inheritance because that's another way to do code reuse that doesn't have as many downsides as inheritance. When I kind of like take it together, I suspect a hypothetical Python that I'm not saying it's like you take Python, you just subtract all the object oriented features, Mm -hmm. but rather you take Python and you say, Instead of doing offering these higher level constructs and these features that we want, these benefits in an object-oriented way, let's look at other ways of doing that. I bet that Python could be even more popular. But that's me as the guy who only knows Python to like help people do their homework. So I'm curious what you think of that. So look, when people ask me or when I talk to people, especially like my intro courses about objects, and there it's a mixed group of like some people coming from C++, Java, C Sharp who know objects, but laugh at Pythons. They're like, what do you mean there's no private and protected? What kind of objects are these? Like those are all the people who like when I give them one of my favorite exercises is to have them do like a class for ice cream scoops and then a class for an ice cream bowl. And some good portion of them are like, so does bowl inherit from scoop? Was scoop inherited from bowl? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like that's not, but they've been taught to look for inheritance anytime you see like two different classes and it's beaten into their head so much that they sort of miss out on why you would want these sorts of things. So what I tell them is basically at the end of the day, objects are there, as I said earlier, as like as an organizational tool so that you can have, as you said, like the encapsulation so that you can have like the higher level thinking, the higher level granularity, and also so you can have the consistency that basically the way that our data structures work and the way the internal data structures work, it's exactly the same. I often describe Python as the Esperanto of programming languages, that once you learn a rule, it like lasts forever from the time you learn the language, like there are no exceptions. I mean, except for exceptions, but like that. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. But basically, if it were possible to have the same level of consistency and abstraction without objects, I would be fascinated to see that. And I would be, I could probably be convinced because I do see it as that sort of, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing to me to see the brick wall people hit when they encounter objects, whereas functions they kind of get. And there is that question, I get it all the time. So wait a second, if there are static methods in Python, what's the difference between that and putting a function in a module? Why would I prefer one over the other? And I'm like, that's why I never use static methods because I think they're kind of silly unless you want to like <laughs> semantically put it inside of your class because we do have these two systems for namespacing more or less. And I never thought of that until now, but I think you're totally right. Yeah, the first language that wasn't like a functional programming language that I've used that very easily could have been object-oriented but wasn't is Rust. Like Rust is definitely not object-oriented. They have like one language feature that kind of is like has the word object in its name, but it's not object-oriented. Like it doesn't feel like an OO language at all. And yeah, it's, it's that same thing where they're just like, yeah, we just do everything with functions and we solve these problems in other ways. And Rust is also getting quite popular. I'll tell you, by the way, like, so I've had a Rust book for like three years or something. And I kept saying, and I'm on page four. And one of these days I'm going to pass that. So when I flew to, I think it was Dublin now and back for EuroPython, I made it all the way to page 20. I'm like, wow, 
Rust is really cool. What interesting ideas. So I'm sure that if I ever make it past page 20 and like go on, that some of these other ideas are going to be like very interesting to see the contrast. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Rust is a, it's, its own can of worms because, I mean, compared to Python, like it's way more complicated. There's a lot there. And, you know, they're trying to solve a very specific set of problems with a very impressive set of constraints. It's like you got to have maximum performance, but also, at least within the safe subset of the language, you're not allowed to have any memory unsafety. And it's just a whole, it's a very ambitious language. I'm curious about something else, though. You mentioned that like a couple times that students hit this brick wall when they get to objects. One of the things that I've heard claimed, and it sounds like this goes against your experience, is that one of the benefits of object-oriented programming is that it naturally models the way the world works and that it's like, this is how people think. And so object-oriented is like this natural, very intuitive way of representing the world. And therefore, it makes it easier to learn. And that's why object-oriented languages are so popular. I've never bought that, but it sounds like your experience is almost just directly contradicts that. I've heard that too. Put it this way. I love functional programming in many, many ways, but I get that our world changes. And then in functional programming, the fact that we can't change things, that's kind of annoying. And so people flocked when it came out to objects because like, finally, state, this is the way the world really works, that things change. Like, I, I get that part. But the number of times that I've created examples that are modeling the real world in objects, you have to make it really clear to people how this is like the real world when we know it's a caricature of the real world anyway. At some point, someone said to me, this is the first object class I've ever used that didn't use the classic example of a pizza. I was like, classic example of pizza? He said, you yeah, mean I've you've never heard, heard so? Apparently, like, it's super popular talking about, well, I have this kind of pizza. I'm going to add this kind of topping and this kind of dough and this kind of, like, Oh, sure. So, but like, apparently that is seen as so concrete that everyone talks about pizzas with objects. I'm like, I always heard about cars and people and employees. Yeah, right. Bicycles and vehicles. And yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. But I'll tell you, people, these sorts of, not even metaphors and analogies, but these sorts of connections that we see as experts, that we can draw a connection between these abstract programming ideas and the real world they are lost on newcomers. You have to really, really make it clear to them where one thing is connected to the other. And no, I just don't see it. I mean, so there's something revealing about these that, that goes back to the roots of OO and like where it comes from, which I've also done a, a good bit of teaching, not Python, but other languages. And one of the things that I always try to do is I try to teach in the context of like, let's build something like let's write a program that actually does something. And it might be something that's not that useful. It's like pretty basic, but like, you know, it's something to give you more than just like, here's some code snippets that are kind of detached from one another. Let's actually like motivate this by building a, a, an application. Nobody builds like a pizza application where you're like adding toppings impaired. <laughs> like that's not a thing. If you're building an application that's like, okay, this is like for ordering a pizza and there's a bunch of different toppings that the user can select to add to the pizza. Great. But like, you don't need to model that in an object-oriented way. And in fact, like probably most of the ways people do that, it's like there's going to be like a dictionary of toppings, right? And like, and like there's a quantity associated with each, you know, did you want double pepperoni or whatever? It's like some other data, like this is going to be a data structure thing. It's not going to be, it's not about inheritance. That's not <laughs> what the pizza ordering problem is. And if you're not, doing a pizza ordering problem, what are you doing? 
Well, you might say, well, I'm, I'm making a pizza simulation. I'm simulating what is it mm-hmm. like to actually perform the process of, of building a pizza. Same thing with the vehicles example. Like again, who's out there making a real world application where it's like really important to have car inherits from vehicle. And it's like, well, maybe if you're doing a simulation where you've got a bunch of different vehicles, you know, coexisting in the same space and you're trying to like add new ones on the fly. And, and like, that was the original objects was from Simula back in the, I think it was 1970s, maybe originally created for doing simulations. And the term that they used for the different agents that were coexisting in the simulation was object. And then Later on, like various other people, so like Bjarne Strustrup with C++, he, he had past Simula experience. He's like, I like this when I was using Simula. I want to add this to C. And he made, originally he called it C with classes. And then later on, C++, after he added some more features, Alan Kay used Simula, liked Simula. was like, oh, let's take objects and let's try to like create this thing called object orientation where we build everything around it, not just simulations. And I think Guido von Rossum also uh, had Simula experience, as I recall before he made Python, like he, he really liked the ABC language, which is really good for like teaching and stuff. I think he wanted it to like run faster. As I recall, it had some simulate experience and objects were originally designed for simulation. <laughs> right. It's so funny. I never, ever thought about why Simula was called Simula. It was for simulations and makes so much sense now. And if you're doing simulations, you want to have these sort of almost tangible things that you can deal with because you've got the state inside of them, keep track of where they are, what they're doing their interactions with others. Amazing. Right. Because they all interact with each other. Yeah. So like they had this concept of, or like this example of a hospital simulation. You want to say, okay, you want to have like the various members of the hospital staff and you want to have all these different like, you know, medicines and and like operations they can potentially do. And then you want to simulate like, okay, what happens if we add more staff? What happens if, and there's a lot of complex state interactions between them and a sort of natural way to model that is like, okay, well, how do people work? They each know about their own, you know, internal state and what's going on. If your actor's in a simulation, that makes perfect sense. Of course, that's, (laughs) that's how you want to think because you don't want to have some sort of like centralized like algorithm running everybody that defeats the purpose of the simulation. The whole point of the simulation is each actor only knows about their own state. They don't know about, and they only find out about the states of others by asking them. And, you know, (laughs) so it's a very natural fit for that problem. But the idea of object orientation was let's apply that to more stuff than just simulations. And so bringing that back to the claim that like, Oh, naturally models the real world and is like intuitive and stuff like that. It would be weird if that were true because it was designed for a special purpose like niche of simulations. And then it was later applied to more things than simulations. So if anything, be a remarkable coincidence if it turned out to be a really natural fit for all these other domains than the the niche that it was originally designed for. Right. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And really, I see so many people struggling with it. And again, like even the people who are experienced with objects, even the people who are experienced with like the Java, C++, C Sharp types of objects, they come to Python and they're like, wait, 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 how am I supposed to do things without? Because they've got this very clear idea of I must have getters and setters. I must have everything private. I must use inheritance for everything. And if I don't do that everywhere, then I just feel all like unsafe. Yeah. A friend of mine mentioned that he had a a class in college about basically the gist of the class was like every other lecture, the professor would rail about how getters and setters are a terrible idea. And, And apparently his reasoning was that like the whole point of modularity and therefore encapsulation in OO terms is that you want to hide the internal representation so that you can be free to change it later without breaking other, you know, pieces of code. And if you're going to make something 
and you're going to make a getter and a setter, well, you've now said, okay, not only do you have access to see the internal implementation, but also you can modify the it very directly. But at that point, just make it public. It's de facto public. I don't know if I buy that because your getters and setters can like actually, they can do all sorts of magic and translation and you know checking of things so they can hide it. That said, Python made the decision very early on. Everything's public. Just go at it. But then they're like, oh, wait, we actually need this magic so that methods will work, so that other things will work. And so you can actually get what are known as properties and descriptors where when you access an attribute like A.B, you don't just get B back but you get back a method that was run on B. So like doing some magical things there. And that is basically like the biggest magic in all of Python. And I talk about it in my advanced classes at like the end of one of the days. I'm like, you will never need to implement this, but you should at least know what's going on. And like people's brains are kind of spilling out of their ears at that point, And they're like, whatever, <laughs> like, we're just going to follow what you say and not do getters and setters. And that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so to be fair, like, and again, I'm, I'm not this professor, so I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, defending someone <laughs> who I, I wasn't even there for. Oh, this is like a third hand story. But I think what he was specifically talking about was the case where you make a private variable and then expose a getter for it that just returns it and then a setter that sets it. Well, that's dumb. If yeah. you're doing like derived stuff, you know, that's a different story. But I mean, I do remember, like, I literally professionally, my first job as a programmer was Java. Sorry, this was the second Java job I ever had. There was a policy of like, you always do getters and setters. And if it's a private variable, don't make it public, make it private and add a getter and setter. And the rationale was in case you ever want to change the internal representation later, which I worked there for several years and that happened never. <laughs> it could have, it could have. And if it ever did, you know, at least we wouldn't have had to go through the agony of one breaking change. Instead, we went through the much bigger agony of making getters and setters for every single thing and using them <laughs> everywhere. But somehow we get these like cultural things where it's just like, this is a best practice now. We got to always do it. And, you know, there's shockingly little retrospection about like, hey, um, you know, we had this theory about like how this is going to save us a bunch of time in practice. Well, we can kind of look back and you know, coarsely estimate how much time we spent on it and how much time it saved us. Are these adding up? <laughs> but I don't know. That seems to happen a lot less frequently than just like creating the best practice and just letting it ride indefinitely. Oh, please. Like, I mean, first of all, I was just telling someone, I guess, yesterday that, I mean, I love programming. I really do. But if I were to work in many of the companies where I do training, I don't know how happy I'd be. Because like, in addition to the program, you've got oodles of meetings and specifications forced upon you and lots of testing and CI. And like, there's all this stuff that sort of sucks the creative air out of the room. And it's necessary because billions of dollars and many lives are at stake. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we're worried about testing and safety and so forth. So the fact that they don't have time to say, is this really the best way to be doing things? They're too annoyed and dealing with the bureaucracy to be considering that. And also, many of them don't have any control over the technology they use. Like, I remember as the new graduate, I walked up to my boss at, at HP just after graduating from college, and I, I said to him, you know, why are we using, like, C and C++? Shouldn't we be using, like, a garbage-collected language? He was like, that's very nice, Ruben. Go back to your cubicle and, like, work on what we <laughs> Like, who is this 22-year-old suggesting that we rip out all the technology we've just spent 10 years working on in favor of his, like, academic pet? 30 years later, of course, I've been fully vindicated, but where are they and where am I? But basically, so these people, most of them are just not going to think about this sort of thing. 
That said, I think the leaders in the industry should be thinking, and it's nice to see some people talking about, hey, maybe we should have alternate models, at least like to raise it in discussions, even if it takes an awfully long time to actually have an inf- any influence. Yeah, because, I mean, this is something that I always find fascinating. I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but sometimes when you talk about new technologies and like cutting edge technologies or making new programming languages, something that people will respond with is like, yeah, but nobody's ever going to use that. You know, like we got these, you're never going to come close to the popularity of Python or JavaScript or Java or whatever. But the thing is, if you take that same mindset and you transport it back 10, 20, 30 years, the languages they mentioned that are never going to change and are always going to be the top languages are different depending on what decade you are saying that. So obviously it changes. <laughs> so look, when I graduated from college, so a friend of mine at the newspaper, he went off and joined Guido van Rossum and is a merry band of Pythonistas. And they basically went from place to place because they couldn't get funding because no one really wanted this weirdo Python language. And I think for like two years, they were in every place for like six months to eight months, moved on to the next place. Finally, a whole lot of them ended up at Google. Google was like, yeah, there's a cool language, we'll use it. And that's when Python got a big burst of energy because it was like given a stamp of approval by an up and coming company. And yeah, like, and I mean, I was at the launch of Java and their people actually were kind of excited because the notion of garbage collection in a real language with objects, they were sort of tired of C++, that they were looking for something better. And this was definitely better. And I, I seem to remember, it might have been Bill Joy, it might have been someone else who got up and said, we took the C++ book and we like ripped out two thirds of it and we got Java. Now, of course, that's an exaggeration in multiple dimensions. <laughs> Although I, I do remember like that was kind of what excited me about Java at first was like, this is like very early on in my time as a programmer. I found out about Java. I had been struggling with C++ and causing myself all sorts of memory safety problems. And like I made this role playing game in C++ and there was this bug at some point where you would walk into a certain town go to the store and instead of the shopkeeper saying, oh, hello, here's my inventory, you would just get memory garbage on the screen. It would just be like, rah, 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 <laughs> just, just a bunch of random ASCII characters, right? And I was lucky that it wasn't a segmentation fault. I mean, that type of thing, I was just like, how do you even go about debugging this? I don't remember how I ever fixed that, but somehow I, I did, but it took a long time and was very painful. And, and I remember in Java, it's like, oh, that won't happen anymore because I'm not dealing with raw pointers anymore. This is amazing. And otherwise, it's just like C++, which I'm already familiar with. Obviously, there's, like you said, there's a lot more to it than that. But like the pitch of garbage collection or just automatic memory management of like not having to allocate and deallocate correctly and not having to worry about use after freeze or double freeze. Wow, such a huge ergonomics bump. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, so my job at HP where we were using C++, Basically, this was uh, software for intensive care units where like life and death is happening. So how do we test the software? It basically ran for six months in our testing facility and we sort of checked to make sure there weren't any memory problems and didn't crash. And if it didn't, okay, it's probably good enough. Now, at some point, first of all, like it's a good thing for the world and for me both that I was quickly taken off and anything I to do with C and C++. Like the intensive care unit, of course, has all these devices in it, and we had our software in our database. And so how did they talk to each other? There was this gateway machine. And so there was some contractor, a different contractor than the one I mentioned earlier, who was in charge of this. And the, the story that I was told is he went to the, the manager and said, I want more money. And the manager said, no way. And the contractor said, then I'm going to walk. And the boss said, okay. And the contractor said, but wait, 
who's going to run this gateway for you? And the manager said, Reuven will run it. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day I'm told, so the guy who ran this gateway is gone. And now you have to learn this programming language is called Mumps or now known as M, which was basically like oodles and oodles of dictionaries, infinitely deep stored on a Maglita disk. And so like I was in charge of this machine and I never had to deal with the C and C++ stuff again, but like I was thick in the weeds of that stuff. And every other week I'd have a different intensive care unit device delivered to my cubicle to see if I could get this ventilator, that ventilator to talk to the gateway. At a certain point, I got tired of dealing with RS-232 ports and like which pin goes where. I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Enough of this stuff. I'm going to do web development. Uh, <laughs> and then they announced to someone else, guess what? Reuven left, That's so right. you're in charge of this now. <laughs> Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. That was kind of wild. Wow. Yeah, I've heard of mumps. You're the first person I've ever met who's actually professionally <laughs> written mumps before. That's a rare distinction. Wow. I did meet a guy once at a meetup who'd done APL, like including on an APL keyboard, like the dedicated one with all the symbols and everything professionally, which, yeah, also very rare. I have a friend who teaches APL. So like, I just met up with him at EuroPython. So I was like, wait, wait, you teach APL? You work in APL? He said, yeah, it's actually used. Like his company does APL and they have clients who really want it for all sorts of like numerical modeling stuff. I was like, I didn't know people still used it. He said, not a lot of people, but like, you know, we are basically them. But like enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, this always surprises me is just sort of the places where technologies are used that mainstream programming doesn't really have visibility into. So a great example of this is I met up with a guy at a conference who does Angular consulting. And this was around the era when React hadn't become sort of like the de facto standard for like front-end web development, which I think at this point it pretty clearly is. Not saying, you know, people don't use other stuff. Obviously, like there's Vue.js and Angular and Ember, and I'm a big fan of Elm. But like there's definitely a clear default when it comes to front-end web development frameworks. But I was talking to someone who did Angular, and he did Angular consulting specifically. And I was asking him about, hey, you know, are you concerned about, like, all of this, like, React's, like, really on the rise? And, like, you know, do you think Angular is falling out of favor? Are you worried about what do your clients look like, you know, doing Angular consulting? And he said, oh, that's not worried at all. My clients look like very big commercial entities that have like 400 developers writing Angular code exclusively for use inside that company. They don't post about it on Hacker News. They don't (laughs) publish open source packages. They just have a bunch of internal proprietary software that's very specific to their business, but their business is big enough that they have hundreds of people writing Angular code all the time. That's what half of my you know clients look like it's not like the startup that's all over hacker news and reddit and everything like that and, and talking and like you know we're hiring we're hiring we're hiring you know they're like no no we're just big long-standing you know decades old business doing a bunch of angular for internal stuff and there's got to be lots and lots of use cases like that where it's not something that we have visibility into but they're out there they're doing apl or elm or, or whatever that maybe somebody who just learned Python would be shocked to learn even exists. Or maybe somebody who's been a professional programmer for decades, you know, be shocked. Because our thinking is colored by the newspaper, right? And, you know, the stock market and Hacker News and Twitter and so on and so forth and what's hot there. But I think it was Joel Spolsky, but maybe someone else said once, the majority of programmers in the world are working at what we would think of as like boring companies. They're not like super exciting startups, but they make a living doing it. And they make a good living doing it, right? Think of all the banks, insurance companies, 
auto companies, all these places, and they might be doing super brilliant, cool development, but it's in places that we don't think to look. And right, if they've got a library or set of libraries that work, they're not about to go change it out just because some cool new thing is out there. No, they'll keep using you know what they've been using forever. Think of all the COBOL that's out there, right? A friend said to me years ago, yeah. you want to make a ton of money? Become a COBOL consultant. I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there were a lot of banks that... It's funny because they are today arguably being punished for having gotten into the computer programming game so early. They were like early adopters. COBOL was the biggest thing when there was like a very small percentage of today's amount of programming going on in the world. So like those were all early adopters back then, but now they're sort of locked into what they were early adopters for. And I mean, to be fair, even companies that are technologically progressive, there's a cost to switching multiple times. Like, let's say that you're like, right now you're like a company that's doing Haskell and you're like, you know, we are really going outside the mainstream. We have no fear. We just want to use whatever we think is the best tool for the job. And this is what we've decided is the best tool for the job. Fair enough. But how likely is it that like in another, you know, one or two decades, you're going to be like, actually, there's a new thing that's slightly better than Haskell. And we're going to switch to that. Right. And maybe like there's a there's a nice migration path. I've heard of companies like that started out on Java and then ended up moving to like Clojure or Kotlin or Scala, all of which have like, you know, pretty clear migration paths. Well, those are all JVM languages, right? Like that's part yeah. of the advantage there is it's got the, the, the combined back end. That's where I think WebAssembly has a lot of potential where you can sort of then swap out the stuff from the languages you don't like, which nowadays would be JavaScript and swap in other languages that can compile the WASM. By the way, like I have a client, they are a hardware company. And so I thought, like, I wasn't sure who I was going to be teaching when I started there, but I now do like three courses every quarter for them teaching there. Mostly they're testing people because all their tests for all their hardware is done in Python with God knows how many machines. And it's all like using Python on Windows with all sorts of C extensions talking to hardware. They're all in Python 2. And they are taking a very, very long time to upgrade to Python 3. And that's theoretically the same language, but it's different enough and it's scary enough and billions of dollars are at stake. They're not moving so fast. And then there, it's like a much shorter path to upgrade than anything a bank would do. Now, this is an interesting point that, or an interesting story that sort of like dovetails into what we were talking about a second ago, which is, so like, how does adoption happen? If you're a long-standing established shop and you want to adopt a new technology, and it sounds like, I mean, the grand theme that I've seen of like success stories, overwhelmingly, it's most commonly that it happens incrementally. It's not that you like take all your COBOL and you throw it in the trash and you pick up Java or whatever you want to move to. It's that there's some incremental migration path, right? And so it sounds like you would know better than I would, but it sounds like there's some story for doing that in Python. Like there's some story for saying like we have a bunch of C code or a bunch of C++ code and somehow incrementally introducing Python to that code base, maybe by just writing some tests in it or maybe via other ways. Does that ring true in your experience or is it? I think so. What I've seen is it happens in sort of one place in a company. And typically, like there's some person who says, hey, I have this idea of using Python for testing instead of whatever test runner we've been using so far. Let's try it. It works. They start to you know gather steam. They see that it works even more. And then they just start to you know, go crazy. But then other people in the company. So just this morning, that same company I spoke to, the head of data science there for their branch in Israel. And she was saying, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff in SQL. We have to do stuff like that's much more modern. 
can you come teach us Python and Pandas? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So this is a totally different group of people who would normally not be coming to my classes with a totally different use case of Python, who I expect within the next few years will be doing 80, 90% of their work in Python because they're going to find how useful it is. And then they can make use of all the other expertise of the company with Python as well. Like it's just going to sort of strengthen itself. Ah, yeah, yeah. So data science is like the, getting the foot of the door and then like it just kind of expands from there. Well, in this case, it's the opposite, right? In this case, it was the testing that did it first and then it's the data science people. And how did the data science people get to me? Because they went to the head of training and the head of training and they said, look, we need some, some sort of possible thing. Head of training was like, wait, Ruben does a lot of training for us. He must know something about data science. And she contacted me. I was like, oh yeah, I, I do intro stuff. Like I don't do anything beyond intro machine learning, but that's more than enough for their purposes. So it'll go from there. By the way, that's another example of you have to be very explicit with people. Like they're not going to see these metaphors and these other things, stretching that a little bit. My clients, like for a while, they were like, oh, you teach Python. And at some point I mentioned, oh, I also teach Git. What? You also teach Git? <laughs> we had no idea. Why did we hire this other bozo who we don't like? So like they went with the bozo and like six months later, they came back to me. And they were like, okay, please teach us a Git course. Unless you're like, I- I've seen, unless I actually say to them, I teach all of these different things. They're not going to guess. They're not going to like see what's in that ecosystem because they're not thinking in terms of programming language ecosystems. And they're certainly not going to go to my website and look through the latest list of courses. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious about something you mentioned about like for data science, like you know, NumPy and Pandas. We talked about this at the beginning a little bit, but like those are kind of like a big modern day selling point of Python. But obviously like Python was getting big well before those existed. And those are sort of like the latest thing that's like made its popularity increase. I've looked at the way that different languages get popular. And there's no, of course, like conclusive definitive, like, oh, this is this has been scientifically studied with rigor. And you can just claim here is exactly why these languages got popular. It's just a lot of like looking at various explanations and trying to decide which explanations make the most sense. Python is unusual among languages I've looked at in that it seems that its popularity has just kind of grown steadily over time. And it's picked up different use cases that it's good at and then gotten more and more popular because it's sort of like branched out into more and more domains. So like at first it was just scripting and then, you know, the web becomes kind of big in like the mid nineties and like, oh, Python kind of gets into that and develops a little bit of a story for that. But at first it was not the biggest, like Perl was like probably the biggest dynamic language that was used for like web scripting at the time. But then like the LAMP stack kind of happens and Python's one of the three overloaded P's in the LAMP stack. It's like Perl, PHP, Python. You know, it's like, it's seeing some use as that. And then like, it starts being used at like Google for, I, I think it was for like internal tooling stuff. And then like uh, Dropbox uses it for their client. And then like the data science stuff comes out, you know, in like the, I don't know, 2010s, somewhere in there. And just like one after another, it just it just kind of accumulates more and more things that it's like known to be good at or usable for. But most of their languages, it seems like there's usually some different story. It's not just like a slow and steady kind of growth. It's like Ruby is like popularity is like it's literally just big in Japan. It's not big anywhere else. There's it's literally like Matt's creates it in Japan. Other Japanese people use it and that's it until Rails comes out and then it's popular just skyrockets. And then suddenly it starts being used, you know, all over the world, you know, like Java, like initially developed for like, you know, Sun Microsystems and like got really big through very intentional marketing. I mean, like not saying it didn't have selling points, you know, we talked about there was stuff I was interested in. But the reason I found out about it was because you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a, like a, an advertisement <laughs> for Java. So there's all these different strategies. But Python, yeah, I mean, it seems like the way that it grew is is very unusual. 
And I'm kind of curious about, I don't know, like, does that match your understanding as someone who's, you know, spent a lot more time with it than I have? Look, I, I think the big insight that Python brought to the table, I always say that it's like in the modern era, people are expensive and computers are cheap. And so most applications don't need to run that fast, but we do need to optimize for writing, for debugging, for maintaining. And so when Guido wrote Python 30 some odd years ago, and he said the biggest, most important value in this language is readability and maintainability, that has sort of kept it going over the years because more and more people who were frustrated, scared, didn't know program, whatever, could still sort of join this movement and get something done. And it didn't matter if it took two minutes instead of one minute, because like, who cares about that sort of performance? There are issues then when you're talking about like, who cares if it takes a day versus an hour? And they're working on that. And actually, Microsoft is putting tons and tons of money and effort into it. And I think it will. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, oh, Microsoft has been, they hired Guido, they hired a whole team. Python 3.11, which will come out this October, will be about twice as fast as Python 3.9, which came out last year. I expect it's going to get faster and faster along the lines of JavaScript. I see no reason why it shouldn't, because like, it's kind of similar internally, right? Or it should be based on my limited knowledge of programming language implementations. Sure. But I think that over the years then, you had a growing number of use cases that could take advantage of that readability. However, Python was also super, super lucky that basically Tickle, while Tickle sort of was thrown aside, Perl kind of committed suicide along the way. It's like, hey, we've got something that's a big winner now. Let's rewrite the whole thing. See in 20 years, right? And so <laughs> Perl just kind of like went away. And I say this as someone who used Perl a lot, wrote a book on Perl, was working with Perl, and like it just kind of went under there. And again, Ruby, I think, had the best chance of pushing Python aside. And I think it might be the objects that just like were too much of a, a difficulty or maybe the data science stuff or maybe the C API was harder. I, I, I don't know. But I think of all these languages, I mean, you could argue that JavaScript did push Python aside in some ways, but I think in, in different niches in different ways. For some use cases, yeah. But yeah, it's been amazing to see. It's been amazing to see it just sort of steadily growing again from this language that they could barely get anyone to pay attention to them 30 years ago. And now it's like the hottest thing ever. It's really shocking to think about what a powerful incumbent Perl was at the time. Like today, it's just like, maybe people know that like Perl's installed on like Mac OS, like Unix-based operating systems, right? And they might wonder why. But I mean, the reason is that like back in the day, everybody wanted it. So that was just like a, a, a selling point of like, oh, of course, like you're gonna have all these Perl scripts. So like, obviously you want Perl pre-installed with the OS. And today it's like, what is Perl? That's the thing with the camel, like that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not a, like a household name in terms of like everybody knows it anymore. But yeah, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was, it was not, it was, what was it, like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, like that was the case. And yeah, like, right. Then there was, I think it was like, what was it? Pearl 5.10, I think was the last one before they, they were like, okay, we're going to do Pearl 6 for real now. And yeah. And then it just, it took forever. The local user groups were called Pearl mongers. And that was like the meetup. And I had a friend who was like, ran one of the local Perlmonger groups. I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I got to make it out to one of those sometimes. He's like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like just tapering off. And like this, people are kind of losing interest and like moving on to other things. And like, what's there to talk about other than like, you know, someday Perl 6 is going to be really cool. And <laughs> <laughs> it really um, kind of imploded in a really surprising way. I mean, it, it would be like as if today JavaScript just like went away. 
Like it just stopped, you know, like it's really hard to imagine. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's a good point is that like that created somewhat of a vacuum for like a popular, you know, scripting language and could have been Ruby, could have been Python. I think when you say it that way, like if you compare Perl and Python and Ruby, I think, you know, readability is a very subjective thing, but I think on average, you'll find, especially if you're talking to beginners, Python is the most readable. Perl is infamous for having all these sigils and like weird operators and stuff, right? And Ruby is like also famously like Python, like nice to read, but not quite to the degree that Python is. Like you do have the, some people really dislike the significant indentation, but what I've heard is that by and large, beginners actually like it, or at least like it helps them write nice looking code, like kind of from the get-go. But uh, is that jive with your experience? People are sort of shocked by it at the beginning. Like experienced developers are like, what? What? They're going to tell me where to indent? And then I sort of give some explanation. I say, by the way, like if you're sitting there counting how many times you get your space bar, like you're doing it wrong. Your tools should be doing this for you. You shouldn't be worried about the indentation. Like the tools should be doing it for you. And if you're new to programming, I think you're right. I think that like everything is going to seem weird. So like this is no weirder than everything else. Like, I think they they find it weirder that you have to keep track of round parentheses, square brackets, curly braces, and where those (laughs) go. Like, that is just super hard for people to figure out. Yeah, I buy that. But yeah, I mean, of those three, I think consensus is that if you had to pick one that most people would say is the most readable, I think they would say Python. And then, like you said, you know, if again, coming from an object-oriented background, maybe you're like, oh, Ruby's the most familiar to me. But if you're not coming from that background and you're like, learning about objects in this language for the first time, then yeah, like Python or Perl, both don't really require knowing how objects work to get into the language. Right. Perl's object system, as I recall, I remember the bless keyword being like, oh, the, like that, yeah. the most Perl thing I could think of, which is basically where you take like a record, like a struct or something like that, you know, some just like anonymous structure. And you say, I bless you, you are now a user or a vehicle or a bicycle or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, now it just becomes you've mutated it into a, like a class instance after the fact. I completely forgot about that. But you're right, you're 100% right. And it's funny, because like, Perl basically adopted Python's object model, at least the object model that existed back then, or some version of it. But I guess bless. Oh, oh I'm gonna have to look this up now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but it was all like very sort of half baked. It's like, well, we'll have objects and they'll be good enough. But let's be honest, we're really talking about dictionaries or you know, as they call them in the pro world, hashes. And at the end of the day, look. So when Python, I want to say 3.6 came out and had a new version of dictionaries. One of the things they said was, and now they consume about 30% less memory. And this was like five years ago or so. And people were like, oh, that's really great. But the really important thing is that everything in Python is a dictionary. Every object is a dictionary and everything's an object. Every module is a dictionary. Every namespace is a dictionary. So you're not saving 30% on your dictionaries. You're saving 30% on virtually everything in a language. And that's really significant. These seemingly small wins are actually big wins. And, and really, the core developers are doing an excellent job of identifying and playing with them and trying to really improve things without breaking anything, which is admirable because it's so hard. Yeah. Wow. Hey, I learned a lot about Python from you just now, so I, I really appreciate it. This has been a really fun conversation. <laughs> Likewise, this is great. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I don't know, I'm always happy to talk about teaching. I mean, I could spend another 60 minutes talking about that. I'll say very, very briefly, like I've been using Python for close to 30 years now. And without fail, when I'm teaching, someone will ask a question and I won't know the answer, either because like they give me a new perspective on things or because I just never needed to do that sort of thing. 
And so I know it's a cliche, but if you really want to learn something, teach it. And so I feel like I'm kind of like people are always asking me, well, how do you improve your skills? I'm like, well, I teach in Israel. So people are very aggressive at asking questions and they don't hold back. And that forces me to learn new things all the time. And that's great for my perspective. That's great advice. I found the same thing. I learned a lot from teaching. Yeah, because there's, there's questions that come up that you don't occur to you on your own. And then you learn them. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Awesome. Ruben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This is a fun one. And yeah, we'll have to talk about teaching again uh, in the future. It would be my great pleasure. Great to talk to you as well. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thanks. Thanks.